radioinfluence.com. Hey gang, Captain Mike Anderson here with the Real Animals Podcast presented by our good friends at Contender Boats. This week I got to spend a little time talking with my good friend Captain Dylan Hubbard from Hubbard's Marina at beautiful John's Pass on the boardwalk over here uh, in Treasure Island, Florida, not far from my hometown here in Tampa. Dylan and his family have been running this business for, seems like, hundreds of years now, and nobody in the industry does big party boat fishing better than Hubbard's Marina, and it's uh, really looking forward to this conversation. I hope you guys enjoy it as much as I enjoy doing it. Joining me here today, my good friend Dylan Hubbard from Hubbard's Marina. I would like to say beautiful Hubbard's Marina on beautiful John's Pass Boardwalk. (laughs) Um, Yes, sir. Fish famous. Yeah, no doubt. Fish famous John's Pass. You know, um, frequent caller to the radio show, uh, you and I have become very, very good friends. We get to talk a lot, um, but I really appreciate this opportunity to where we could you know, we're not up against the clock for a break after just five minutes of, of Dylan Hubbard. So, um, and I want to dive in a little bit, Dylan. I want to I want to give people a little bit of the background of Hubbard's Marina before we dive into yeah. D- Dylan Hubbard and, and Captain Mike doing the whole WrestleMania thing. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we need to. We need, that's an inside joke for those of you listening. Um, but, but you know, it's such an interesting story to me. Now, your grandfather, Wilson Hubbard, he's the found, mm-hmm. he was the founder of Hubbard's Marina quite a while ago, correct? Yes, sir. Yeah, it, it's, it is an interesting story. I mean, I, I always credit it as a four-generation company because my great-grandfather ran the business for a long period of time. But technically, Wilson, uh, my grandfather, did start the company back in 1928 with seven rowboats and 14 cane poles. And he what, started fishing. I thought I read something this morning on the bio. How much did he pay for that? Is it in the bio like 150 uh, bucks or something? Yeah, it's something like that. <laughs> seven I don't remember boats. off the top of my head. Yeah. I could be but wrong on that. Back then, number. 150 bucks was a lot of money. Yeah, you know? a, uh, you're right. You're right. You're right. But that's yeah. pretty That's pretty interesting. So Yeah, and he started uh, king fishing and tarpon fishing and mackerel fishing back then. Uh, from a rowboat just out of Paso Grill. That's where they started on the 8th Avenue Pier there in Paso Grill. And uh, shortly thereafter, uh, World War II rolled around, and uh, my grandfather, Wilson, uh, was in the Air Force and enlisted to uh, fly resupply planes. So when he left for World War II, my great-grandfather took over the business, and uh, he ran it for a few years there uh, until he passed away, and Wilson took it back over. So... I I say uh, for advertising, I guess, uh, that it is a four-generational company for that reason. For sure. Um, but, I mean, ninety over 90 years and four generations later, we do a little bit of everything from uh, two inches of water because we work with uh, you and uh, get people back bay, inshore fishing trips, fly fishing, and then uh, ourselves, we do the nearshore and offshore fishing uh, on a a variety of party boat fishing trips and then also private charters. We got four different private charter boats from a 60 foot Hatteras sport fishing boat to a 
hydrofoil-assisted catamaran that was custom-built to our uh, tried-and-true boats like the Hub and Flying Hub 1. And then, of course, what we're most popular for are our party boats, where we do our long-range trips like our 39-hour and 44-hour trips out to the Florida Middle Grounds, Elbow, and surrounding areas. Do you think, Dylan, that uh, that your grandfather, Wilson Hubbard, had this vision? I mean, you know what I'm saying? I'm just... It amazes me in in looking at the pictures and, and just going online and doing a Google search for Hubbard's Marina and kind of diving into it, doing a little homework this morning for this podcast. And and I was I was just kind of sitting in my chair in my office thinking to myself, I, I mean, how cool is it if you're Wilson Hubbard looking down from the heavens to see how far and how incredible this this vision that he had has become. I mean, I know it was something when he had it, but it's 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 just a famous place now. Hubbard's Marina is just it's interwoven into the culture of of the West Coast of Florida. I mean, I, in in my estimation, nobody does big boat party fishing like you guys do it. And then with everything that you've done, Dylan, you know, on the conservation side and the way you you know dove into all of the political issues and all those things, and you've you've chosen to educate yourself and, and become this leader for for you know the whole entire fishing community i mean somewhere in there there has to be a big smile come across your face when you know that wilson hubbard your grandfather is looking down on you and has to be pleased with the way that hubbard's marina has grown and come together as a company oh well, i would definitely like to think so and i really appreciate uh that it's definitely uh, great to hear, and and all I can say is I'm very passionate about what I do, and I'm very blessed to be in the position that I'm in, and uh, that's why I try so hard to make sure that we are giving back uh, to our fishing industry by staying involved in these fishery management issues and fishery management arenas, and also giving back to the community through charitable donations and giving fishing trips out to uh, the Wounded Warriors and Vet Catch and uh, great organizations like Reeling Freedom. And it's it's a really big, big benefit to go to work every day and love what you do. Because my grandfather always said, if you love what you do, you never work a day in your life. And I definitely feel like I have uh, that blessing because uh, when I go to work, I enjoy it. When I'm not off work, I'm thinking about work. <laughs> and it's great to go fishing uh, and get out there and enjoy uh, a day on the water. And nothing beats seeing that smile on a first-time angler's face when they hook up and they get it. It clicks in their mind and they start catching fish on their own, especially those young children, seeing those kids getting hooked on fishing. There's just nothing better. And what really floors me and what really uh, drives me is you see generations. Uh, I had a trip last year where we had four generations of family on the boat. This family from Illinois, the great-grandfather started fishing here when my grandfather ran it back in the 1940s, 1930s, and he had his great-grandson on the boat with him and his grandson as well. So it was really cool to see all the families that have grown up fishing at, here at Hubbard's Marina from our half-day trips all the way up to our long-range 39-hour trips and private charters and everything in between. 
they really get a chance to kind of grow up fishing together. And, and that's what we're all about, getting people out there and uh, getting everybody an opportunity to take part in this amazing fishery that we have here in Central West Florida. I've been very blessed myself because I, I, I've got to to do what I do here for 20 years now uh, in the Bay Area. And, and I had the opportunity to work with your dad, um, Mark Hubbard, and uh, before you got involved in it. And I guess your dad started, I guess your dad took it over in about 2004? Uh, he purchased the company in 2006. Okay. Uh, Hubbard's Marina uh, was owned by uh, my grandmother. Uh, my grandfather passed in uh, 96, and uh, my grandmother uh, owned the company, and all eight children. My father has seven brothers and sisters, wow. and all eight children kind of helped run it. They actually all got a shot at running the company one year. It was pretty interesting there from 96 until early 2000s every year we had a different president of the company and it was uh a little turbulent to say the least but uh all said and done uh my father was the one who was really really involved and stayed involved and uh uh he was in a position to take over the company in 2006 and uh as of this year uh I'm a majority owner in Hubbard's Marina myself and I'm very blessed and uh very excited to see what's to come yeah, no doubt. I think uh, I had I'd spoken with your dad as you were you were making the ascension here to your position now, and and uh, I, I think the company's in great hands. Uh, you and I have become very, very good friends, and I love the way that you handle stuff, your professionalism and all that. So no worries uh, for Hubbard's Marina. I think it's in, in good hands. It's in good hands. What is it, when you were young, Dylan, what is it that steered you because I know you went away your dad made you go away from the business a while to make sure that you wanted to do this you wanted to come back to it tell me what it was what was it about fishing as a kid and and Hubbard's Marina and the business that drew you back into it was it something from your childhood or I mean how did that come about uh it's just the the people the people uh that I mean I love fishing I enjoy fishing getting out there and going fishing is awesome but the people the camaraderie here the we are blessed with in my opinion the best crew the best staff we have a great team here we have captains that have been here 20 we have one captain who's been here about 30 years we have a galley cook that's been here about 25 years i've got multiple crew members have been here almost 20 years and that is what brought me back and the people the customers the clients you see the same people every week every month every couple months or the same people coming into town every year and it's awesome to build that relationship and see these people come back and i i saw it growing up i started uh my first job here at the marine i was about maybe five six years old i would catch pinfish for my grandfather and uh, he would pay me, like, I think it was like 10 cents or something for every pinfish. And uh, I would catch a bunch of pinfish, save up my money, and uh, go buy uh, some ice cream up on the boardwalk. And it's uh, probably why I'm so big, but I caught a lot of pinfish. <laughs> but uh, from then on out, man, I was hooked. And uh, I bought my first boat when I was nine years old. And I commercially pinfished for a few years and uh, helped pay for my boat and just got hooked on inshore fishing. Uh, trout, flounder, snook, all that kind of stuff. And then when I uh, was about 15 years old, I started working full-time on the charter boats uh, in my spare time when I wasn't at school on the weekends and over the summer. And uh, I just loved it, loved meeting people, 
love meeting new people, teaching people how to fish, and uh, going to seminars with my dad and watching him teach people how to fish just always kind of mesmerized me. And it was really cool getting to meet people like yourself and all the different people that we are blessed to rub shoulders with in this fishing industry. And it's, it's, like, it's the industry itself. It's a very tight-knit industry. Uh, someone needs something, someone's always there to help you, and it's, it's amazing. Uh, the fishery that we have, the people that we have, and the industry that we have and that we're blessed with in this area. And that's what drove, drove me back. Uh, like you said, my dad made me go away. He fired me when I, when I was about 16 years old. He, uh, he didn't want to, uh, to happen to me what he saw happen to some of his family. And uh, he felt some people in his family worked at the marina just to make their father, my grandfather, happy. And uh, they, the only reason they chose to stay at the marina was to try to uh, to try to make their father happy, and right. he he wanted to make sure that I didn't fall into that trap, and uh, I was only working at the marina because that's what I wanted to do, and that's that's why he sent me on my way, and I I followed his wishes. I I went to work for uh, Publix, and then GNC, and then Vitamin Shop, and went off to school in Central Florida. I went to UCF, and I strategically chose UCF because it wasn't anywhere near any salt water. And uh, after about three years, I was dying. I had to get back out in the water. Uh, I would drive home every summer, spend the s- summer uh, fishing and uh, charter fishing and working as a first mate and uh, putting my hours together for my captain's license and uh, had to come back. It just uh, drew me back, the fishing, the people, and uh, the whole industry. And just being here at the marina, meeting people and uh, being part of that legacy and uh, hopefully uh, making my grandfather proud. Oh, there's no doubt in my mind, brother. There's no doubt in my mind. So is that where you met your wife at UCF? Uh, uh, she's going to kill me. But, uh, <laughs> yes, I did meet my wife at UCF. I was a bouncer. That's how I uh, made my money in college. Okay. Uh, so I saw her uh, with an underage wristband uh, and I watched her come in and caught my eye, and uh, then all of a sudden I saw later she was switched over to a overage wristband, so I told her I wouldn't kick her out of the bar if she gave me her phone number, and uh, now we're married. <laughs> <laughs> smooth, smooth. Yeah, I'm so yeah. glad I have that story. I'm going to use that against you the next time I see the two of you together, just so you know. That's Please don't. Please don't. <laughs> Everybody listening, nobody call my wife I said that. <laughs> that's amazing. And while I, on that note uh, of your beautiful bride, I, I want to make sure I put a congratulations out there. I know you and your wife are expecting a baby, and uh, that is super cool news, my brother. Yeah, I'm I'm super pumped. I cannot wait. September 1st, and uh, as God would have it, just perfectly uh, right in the beginning of our slow season. So I'm going to have some time on my hands to spend at home with my wife and my new baby. And uh, I'm really, really looking forward to uh, finding out, boy or girl. Yeah, well, I will tell you this, that uh, um, it won't matter. Yeah, I know. It won't I'm, matter. I'm pumped either way. Yeah, it, it just, both of my daughters uh, were born, with, I had boy names picked out. And I'm telling <laughs> you, from from the minute they come out and smile at you, you get them in your arms, it, it just, it doesn't matter. I wouldn't trade my girls for anything. So, And then I will share this with you too. And again, I'm only sharing this with you, Dylan, because I love you and I don't make this stuff up. I just live by the rules. You know me. I'm a straight shooter. I live by the rules, oh, yeah. clean, straight. 
the sexiest men in the world have baby girls. I'm just saying. I don't. Mm-hmm. I don't make up these rules. I just. I live by them. <laughs> I mean, it's not my fault. Somebody, you know, made that rule way before me. So, um, but good luck to you, I'm, Bill. I'm, I guess I'm having a girl. Then. <laughs> there, you <go>. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. There you go. No doubt about it. So, so let's dive into a little bit of uh, the political side, and and not to go down any crazy road, but because you're so involved, Dylan, and because you're spending so much time and energy, resources, you know, traveling to all these meetings and doing the stuff that you're doing, I, I, I want to know from, from you, because I don't have the time, I wish I had more time to be as involved as you are, um, I want to know from you that you believe that things are going to get straightened out. Yeah, I mean, it's really, really difficult uh, on the outside looking in to have any confidence or any security in the fact when you when you look at especially federal fishery management, the FWC seems to really do a good job of communicating and interacting. But even sometimes that sometimes at the state level, it's a little bit bleak as well. Um, but. I think Being the state. Involved, I think the state level is a lot better than the federal level. I agree. I yeah. agree completely, and I I feel a lot more confident in state a lot of times because they just do a better job communicating, uh, and I think that has a lot to do with it's just one state government, one one set of rules. You know, when the federal fishery, it's very difficult to cross five Gulf states, and just the management. Uh, pressure alone because what works for the eastern gulf doesn't work in the western gulf and what works in the eastern and western gulf doesn't work in the northern gulf and uh the entire gulf fishery is managed one way under one set of rules and and uh that adds an extra layer of uncertainty and uh and pressure to the whole issue any issue because everybody wants their own way you know and what's best for their state um, but definitely in the last two and a half years, getting more involved in federal fisheries management has been very interesting and something that I enjoy from a perspective of I got involved because I was worried about uh, our fishery, our recreational access, and the future of my business for my future child uh, when he or she grows up and they want to be involved in the fishery um, I want to make sure it's there for them. So that's what drove me to get so involved. And last year, I went to uh, about 45 days uh, solid of meetings, sitting in meeting rooms and advocating for recreational fishing rights and uh, federal fishery uh, access for recreational fishermen, whether they're on a party boat, private boat, or a charter boat. And uh, it's, it's been very eye-opening to say the least because on the outside looking in four years ago uh i was very very pessimistic and uh it looked like the world was gonna end when it came to our federal fisheries but once you get involved and you get your feet wet and you really dive in uh it i definitely have some hope and i this year after two and a half years i finally feel like I know the players of the game. I know how the game works, and I feel like I'm finally starting to make a difference, especially with this recent allocation-based management uh, move. They were trying to push uh, IFQ and PFQs into the charter for hire and party boat sector, and I really feel like I was able to make a difference in shutting that down uh, and putting that back a few years. So really, really pleased with how the system uh, is able to 
educate you and after a little bit of time become uh, effective in the federal fisheries management arena. But what's scary, Mike, and I shared this with my dad, man, I just made, I, I was on the phone with Governor DeSantis' aide just three days ago. I had a phone interview with uh, DeSantis' office because I applied for a seat on the Federal Fishery Management Council, the Gulf Council, right. uh, who's in charge of federal fishery management. I applied for a seat to represent Florida because we have four seats, and uh, one of the seats was coming up for reappointment. So I put my name in the hat, and I actually I made the governor's list. So I was very, very uh, happy and honored to be on that list. But as soon as I made that governor's list, uh, I didn't even know I made the list yet. I hadn't even opened my email. I had four missed calls. And every one of those missed calls was from an NGO, whether that be uh, Environmental Defense Fund, uh, Pew Trust, Oceana. These are environmental NGOs, and they knew that I made that appointment list before I did. And they were calling me to talk, and they wanted me to call them back. And that's a little scary to me that they have that much uh, – pool in our political spectrum. And that's, that's one thing that worries me is a lot of times when you, when an issue, uh, a fishery issue presents itself, um, a lot of times I see a lot of influence from a place that is not stakeholder driven and things like CCA and uh, NMA, uh, ASA, these recreational lobbies, they are very, very active in fighting these big groups. And that's really our only hope as fishermen is banding together and having a voice. And there's groups that represent commercial fishermen. There's groups that represent charter and party boat fishermen. And there's groups that represent recreational fishermen. But we all need to try to stand together and work against some of those groups that are trying to take away fishing access for all of us. Yeah, you know where I'm at with, you know, CCA especially. Um, but I, I think it, it just it boggles my mind to no end, and I know you've heard me on this soapbox before, that we don't get more support um, yeah. from each and every recreational angler because it, it seems to me that it's, there's just so much money and energy poured into the efforts to keep us off the water, to keep us out of the woods, to keep us from fishing, to keep us from hunting. Um, it, it just blows my mind that people aren't more active, you know, protecting that right. Um, it, and a lot of people just don't realize how important it is to, to do that $35 membership to CCA or another organization to represent you. Just, for example, uh, a lot of these meetings, these federal fisheries meetings, the Gulf Council meetings, they're held Monday through Thursday. They're held five times a year across the five Gulf states. And the people at these meetings, there's 17 voting members of the council, and then there's Gulf Council staff. So that's like, let's say, 25, 30 people. Then there's an audience. And out of that audience, there's probably a solid 15 to 20 people that are making six figures, and they're paid to be there. They're lawyers, lobbyists. They represent CCA. There's four or five CCA guys, but there's maybe 10 from environmental NGA groups. There's one from ASA. There's some representatives from the private recreational sector. There's some for, there's a lot for the commercial fishermen. There's a few commercial fishermen in the room, and there's a few charter boat and party boat guys in the room, but the private recreational angler, 
that's what I would love to see more of at these meetings. Yeah, no doubt. But it's tough. It's tough. Well, it's don't Monday you think through Thursday? Don't you think they set it up that way? I mean, that's what the, what really bothers me. And again, I don't want to be, you know, there's so much there's so much flaky business that goes on in politics, as we all know. And yeah. and 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 not I'm, I'm, on the Republican side and the Democratic side. Okay, in government in general, mm-hmm. politicians have gotten so dirty and so convoluted and so misleading that anytime you get these you know groups together it's hard for people to actually believe that they're going to do the right thing that it isn't money based that it isn't you know somehow politically muddied up for whatever you know whatever whoever's agenda um and i think that's what people need to understand and and you know, the only, I've said it a million times, the only way to fight it is to come together in one of these groups. We can't, we yeah. can't do it without everyone's support. You know, and I know you've heard me say it before, and maybe a bunch of the people who listen to the podcast have heard me say it before. They'll hear me say it again. There's a reason that they haven't taken your guns yet. Every single time a politician gets up on a soapbox and says, we're coming after your guns, I laugh. It's 6 million votes, minimum. That's just members of the NRA. That's not gun owners across the United States. That's just members of the NRA. They're not losing 6 million votes. They're not taking that to their grave because they can't afford to lose the 6 million votes. If we had 3 million members of CCA, just 3 million, it would change the whole entire game. It would change the whole entire game. It would make our voice much more heard, and we would be able to get a lot more done. So, and and uh, it's powerful. It's powerful getting involved. And if you can't get involved and show up to a meeting, it's powerful having someone there to represent you. Right. And right. Uh, and that's one thing. Being there and having the ability to take the time off and attend these meetings, it has been pretty eye opening because there's a lot of people on that council that are really there because they care about the fishery and uh, i've really been blessed to get to know some really cool people that devote their time and take 30 40 days a year out of their schedule to devote to protecting the fishery in the gulf of mexico but those people care about the fish and they err on the side of caution and i think that's one thing that is a little faulty in the federal fisheries management arena is they really tend to err on the side of caution almost too much. For example, what's going on in the hog fishery, the recent uh, Magnuson-Stevens Act reauthorization kind of ties the hand of the council. The council wanted to stop that hogfish restriction. The hogfish allowable catch limit, or ACL, got cut by 70% for 2019. And the council didn't want to see that happen. The council members on that council fought hard against it. But their hands were tied because of regulation, because the assessment said one thing, and the assessment was full of uncertainty. The numbers didn't match up to the previous assessment. Right. Then the scientist, science and statistical committee recommended a certain ABC to, pre- to prevent overfishing because they were uncertain of those fishing levels during those years in question. Then, because they rep- or they recommended an ABC so low, the council's hands were tied. Right. So the council really does try to do their best to prevent these ridiculous 
fishing seasons and shortened closures and ACL closures when they can. But when the fishery's in trouble, like, for example, what we're going through with red grouper, they're seeing huge numbers of red grouper loss in recruitment, and the red grouper landings aren't there. That's something they worry about, and they really tighten down on restrictions, maybe a little bit too much. But they're all there fighting for the preservation of the fishery and making sure those fish are there for the future. And and it, it hurts. It hurts. But at the same time, I see a lot of those people, a lot of those 17 people on the council fighting for the future of our fishery. And in the short term, it stinks not having a fishing sure. season. But when you look at it from that 30,000 view, it does makes sense in some degree but there's some issues where it kind of waffles and every issue is different and there's so many issues and going back to what you said before about that monday the meetings being monday through thursday across all five gulf states i don't know any other way to do it if if i was in charge and i i was in charge of making sure that i made those meetings uh easy to attend for everybody i don't know how you would do it because we spend at one of those meetings, it starts Monday morning at 8 a.m. It doesn't finish until 6 p.m., and that's four, five days in a row sometimes, 8 a.m. to 6 p.m., and there's not a lot of breaks. We have a short lunch that is solid working time at those meetings, so it, yeah, but it nobody, is very difficult. Nobody set the work week up Monday through Friday. That was some kind of yeah. fallacy somewhere. There's no reason that that thing doesn't go over a weekend. And that would give an opportunity on those two days, on Saturday and Sunday, for a lot more recreational guys to attend one of those meetings. Yeah. And the reason that I've been told, which you can argue it or not, is the over the weekend, that's when the, the budgetary concerns are the biggest thing when they look at planning these meetings because the council members uh, and the council staff have to fly in and get hotel rooms and they have to rent a hotel room to hold this meeting in and over the weekend the rates are a lot considerably higher and uh, that's you, pretty lame excuse. I was going to say. I know, I'm not making the, I'm the, I'm the I'm, don't shoot the messenger but that's the reason that I heard. Yeah, uh, you get my blood boiling. And when they, they do they do make public comment later in the day. That's one thing they started doing to make it easier for more people to give comment is the comment happens at 3 or 4 in the afternoon, uh, so that way people have time to get off work and make it there. And you can submit comment uh, via their website, and you can attend the meeting via webinar as well. Right. But obviously being there in the meeting room and being able to rub shoulders with these people makes a lot of a difference. Well, we're definitely thankful that uh... – that you're there and you're doing it. And I don't know any any true sportsman, any outdoor sportsman anywhere, true lover of the outdoors that doesn't want to err on the side of caution when it comes to every animal, whether it's white-tailed deer or, you know, Osceola turkeys or whatever, wood ducks, you know, gag grouper, red grouper, snook, I don't care what it is. If, if it's in question... If it's in question, it needs to be shut down. You know as well as I do, all the years that you and I have been chatting fishing. To me, it's all about making sure we get the right science. I want to know, Mm -hmm. as an outdoorsman, as somebody who makes my living on the water, I want to know exactly what's going on. If you can put a man on the moon and he can drive a vehicle around, I'm pretty sure we can find a way to count the fish in the Gulf of Mexico. You would hope so. I would certainly hope so. Like you were saying about deer and turkey and all that 
those animals are in the woods and they're on land and it's definitely a lot more difficult to count all the fish in the sea especially when these fish migrate in cyclical patterns and you're talking about ocean currents because they go out there and spawn in these huge aggregations and these little microscopic babies are floating around in ocean currents where do those babies get set are they in the estuary do do they get eaten by huge whale sharks it's just the amount of science that goes into this is crazy. Well, I, the I problem t- that I see, the biggest problem I see with it, Mike, is out in the California, as basically how federal fisheries management works is there's eight federal councils, and these councils represent an area. So we're in the Gulf of Mexico. We have the Gulf Council. On the east coast of Florida, that's the South Atlantic Council. From North Carolina all the way down to the tip of Florida and the south side of the Keys, you have the Caribbean Council, you have the New England Council, you have the Pacific Council, North and South Pacific Council, and then you have the West Pacific Council. All these councils, especially in the Pacific, they have multiple science centers for each council. In the Gulf of Mexico, there is one science center split between the South Atlantic Council, the Gulf Council, and the Caribbean Council. So three councils share one science center to do assessments. That's the problem I see with our fishery. You want to say that we're doing science-based management? where We're waiting for an assessment for three, four, five years sometimes before we do another assessment on a species? That's unacceptable. We should be doing assessments on these species every year. The only way to do that is by creating more of these science centers. We should have one or two or three science centers for the Gulf of Mexico, one in the north, one in the east, one in the west. That way, every area, every region of the Gulf of Mexico um, has up-to-date assessments. Accountability, for sure, for sure. Yeah. Well, and it, it baffles and me. that would help a lot. It baffles me, and, I, and you make a great point there, and, and it baffles me that knowing what fishing is to the country, the number one participation sport in the country, multi-billion dollar industry, it blows my mind that somehow we can't get more effort pushed towards it. And that's one one of the biggest things that opened my mind when I started learning about this process is and the California coast there's three science centers for their fishing council and in Alaska there's two science centers for their council and here in the Gulf of Mexico we're sharing one right. really really old science center for three councils and they're in charge the southeast fishery management or the southeast fishery science center in miami that's where they're based out of they're also in charge of highly migratory species and sharks so if you include all those different species that they're doing assessments on it's like we're sharing one science center with five councils it's ridiculous and we do uh, an assessment on red snapper red snapper for goodness sakes we're doing only an assessment every four to five years what we should be doing those every year right yeah i totally agree absolutely crazy dude absolutely crazy well like i said it's your your passion for this and the 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 fact that you jumped in with both feet uh got so well versed in it and so well educated on all these subjects you've helped me out a bunch uh because it it feels makes you make me feel like i get a little bit better grasp on it and i'm nowhere near as well grasped in it as you are um but it, it really uh I think, uh, you know, as I said earlier, Wilson Hubbard, I know your dad, Mark, is, is everyone in the family is very proud of you, your leadership in this company, your leadership for the fishery uh, here on the west coast of Florida. I think the whole west coast of Florida, you know, owes you a debt of gratitude being so young and so, um, you know, well-spoken on this topic to me is just, uh, 
it's fantastic and it makes me it makes me feel good about the fishing future of Tampa Bay and the west coast of Florida in general so I hope you keep that leadership going brother cuz uh, we need you to fight this fight Hey I'm very very happy to do it I enjoy doing it and uh I'm very blessed to learn from guys like you and uh the other people in this industry, uh, like Dave Marquette, the guys at F- Florida Guides Association, and all the other great uh, industry leaders that I've had uh, help give me advice and lead me down this path. Well, keep up the good work, my friend. Dylan Hubbard, I really uh, enjoyed speaking with you today. Thank you so much for your time. Uh, Hubbard's Marina there on beautiful John's Pass Boardwalk over there at Treasure Island, just a fantastic place. I've been out with them several times. It's absolutely, bar none, the best cheeseburger on the Gulf. You can't beat it. Catch fish one minute, slide inside, little air conditioning, have yourself a cold beer, killer cheeseburger fresh off the grill. It doesn't get any better than that. Dylan Hubbard, thank you so much, buddy. I appreciate you. Hey, anytime, man. I appreciate you guys. Remember, if you're too busy to go fishing, you're just too darn busy. That's the tagline we needed, my brother. Appreciate you. Have a good day, my friend. All right, guys. Have a good one. See you, buddy. Hey, gang. Hope you enjoyed that podcast there with my good friend, Captain Dylan Hubbard from Hubbard's Marina. Just a really inspirational young fella. Um, I don't even know that Dylan's... 30 years old yet and he just uh, he just blows my mind he's so passionate about it does such a great job he's a great family man a very good friend of the real animals and uh, was just absolutely a pleasure getting to know him make sure you tune in next week for our next episode of the real animals podcast they're coming to you every Tuesday remember you want to subscribe rate and review that's very important and uh, if you want to follow us on any of our social media outlets you can follow us on Facebook at Facebook slash Real Animals, on Instagram at Real Animals TV, and on Twitter at Real Animals Fish. Have a great day, everybody. Talk to you soon. This is a flavor of Tampa Bay with Ian Beckles and Tracy Guida Quick Fix on Radio Influence Tampa Bay. So now during Taco Week, I'm going to investigate a little bit. But you like need I, like to. I said, I, I need to get the buzz this whole taco thing I don't think I quite understand it now um, Rocco's Tacos is another name of a place I know you said you've been there I have mainly because my son is named Rocco okay and it's funny kids would tease him and call him Rocco Taco and he would get very upset I said that's a great name sure I mean come on well it's a great name unless somebody's calling you that and trying to make fun of you I said, well, tacos are awesome. Well, no, <laughs> it's not about the name. It's I, about people teasing. But now he likes it. Okay, but he still wants somebody calling you Rocco right, Taco. but you got, when people laugh at you, you got to ignore know, it. No, you got to dot their eye. They're just jealous because of his name. Yeah, no. <laughs> yeah, that, is that what you're telling them? They ignore it? I told my son to dot their eye. <laughs> That's what. Dot it. <laughs> hey, you gotta let people know I'm not the one. I'm not the one. You're gonna be teasing. Let's just let's stop. Let's smash this right now. Let's let's get it get it over with, please. Flavor of Tampa Bay with Ian Beckles and Tracy Guida can be found on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, Google Podcasts, and ritampabay.com. dot